Welcome to To Your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. And I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey there. And so we will wrap up Ecclesiastes, do a little bit of First Kings and Second Chronicles this week. So uh, we'll be jumping around some of those stories that you guys just read uh, this past week. Uh, so we'll finish up Ecclesiastes to start and it's still... Leakish. Yeah, um, I kind of wonder for those of you who are reading every day what your experience has been like spending, you know, 10 or so days in the book of Ecclesiastes. I study it a little bit differently to prepare for the podcast, but um, I wonder how it impacts your just your operations or what you think about throughout the day when you spend 10 days straight in a book like this. Yeah. And so we continue with uh, some teaching as part of it saying, hey, be generous. Don't hoard all the wealth. Um, spending a life trying to get more and more in wealth without being generous is just, uh, it's its vanity amongst other things. And uh, the 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 teacher here reminds them like, look, like you don't make the rainfall, you don't make the wind blow. You don't even know how a baby's in it together in the womb. So go about your work, do do things well and enjoy some of the things in life. It's, it's, it's kind of Hey, know your place in terms of knowing how the universe works and and move forward. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah, I think what I saw in this section is just this idea that wisdom is not knowing everything, which I think I imagined it was before, but it's really knowing the God who makes everything. And we oftentimes confuse wisdom and knowledge, but the teacher here seems to really emphasize that wisdom is really knowing who you are and where your standing is in, in this great world and the one who is actually sovereign and in control. So wisdom looks like being at peace with God and God's work and being faithful to God, not necessarily having all the answers. Yeah. And we hear youth is good, but it's still vanity. But uh, being old, he kind of compares it uh, there, sort of being at death's doorstep. Everything feels like it's decaying. It's it's, pretty, it's a pretty bleak uh, imagery that he uses in this section that all things kind of come to the end, just like a string that gets snapped or a bowl that gets shattered. Human lives do the same thing. We return to dust. But there's some hope because he seems to acknowledge that our spirit returns to God. But yeah. But he still says all that, too, is still vanity. Yeah. I mean, he's like, yeah, remember your creator. And everything is vanity, but maybe it's not such bad news when you know your creator, yeah. when you know the one who, who created you and holds all things together. And then we jump back out, going back to the narrator to kind of close the letter. Um, and uh, he reminds us that this preacher teacher has collected a bunch of proverbs, but uh, the narrator sort of take home lesson. We kind of get it from him where he's like, fear God, keep his commandments mm-hmm. and God will judge ultimately good and evil in the end. Yeah. And so it's, it's interesting because we didn't get a whole lot of commandments from the teacher. Um, but, but the narrator comes in going, okay, we have God, we should fear him and, and we know his commandments. So the narrator seems to have more context of who God is than it seems like uh, the teacher necessarily teaches from right. um, and, and some knowledge of, of what is truly good and evil. Yeah, I mean, I think we are to entrust ourselves to God and his really unknowable ways. Uh, We will give account for our actions. But at the end of the day, when we fear God and keep his commandments, we will find peace and contentment even. So final thoughts on this book as you read it again. Um, Actually... It wasn't nearly as depressing as a book for me as I thought it was going to be. I really like that the teacher takes us to the lowest places of Havel, you know, trying to be able to grasp onto something that we can't ever quite hold in our hands. But then the teacher reminds us that it's only Havel because we don't understand and God understands and he has a purpose and a reason for all things. So wisdom looks like understanding really that I know very little and God knows all. 
And when we get that, our best response is to fear God and keep his commandments and to enjoy God's gifts as they come, not trying to get something more than what we currently have. Um, So I really feel a lot of comfort and peace after having studied this book. But I will say the other thing I wish I could do is sit down with a writer of Ecclesiastes and just like (laughs) preach the gospel to him and let him know that there are now new things under the sun. We are new creations. We have a new birth and we have new life in Christ. So when you take Ecclesiastes and you, and you, like, I don't know, like weave in the gospel truth. It's a really profound book and it gives a full and profound picture of wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. I still kind of walking away, struggled with exactly what the teacher's (laughs) perspective is or whether the the teacher's more nihilistic, whether he's hopeful at all, whether he's just kind of just cynical, if he's Epicurean in terms of like, Hey, like we don't know much about this life, so we might as well just enjoy it. And, um, I think, I think this book gives language to to those of us that that struggle sometimes waking up and feeling feeling like the the writer of Ecclesiastes where it's like what if what if there's, there's just not that much to life yeah. and it, it really is all vapor and and to wrestle through what that looks like and and even to have the narrator interject or even have have the the teacher interject every now and then going no 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 there's definitely more like the god is still sovereign that God still has judgment over things in this world. So even the the things that happen to the poor that are unjust, like there's an answer to that. And he, did, he doesn't give a lot of context. He doesn't give a lot of um, perspective into exactly how that answer plays out. Um, but there's still like these moments throughout the book where the author or the teacher seems to to put a few things into perspective, even though he's really still wrestling through like the feeling that everything almost is vanity. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So let's jump to Kings, uh, where uh, we have Solomon now interacting with this uh, queen from kind of the area of Yemen uh, at the time, uh, this area kind of far away, but um, she's she's part of what is a pretty wealthy kingdom herself, uh, would have been probably part of uh, trade routes, uh, and so had gotten themselves plenty of money, and she's heard about this Solomon and comes to visit, and she's quite impressed by this man. Um Yeah, I think it's an interesting story because what I want to do is have some really clear conclusion of um, the Queen of Sheba, you know, praises God because of Solomon's wisdom and wealth, or we can say that this is another picture of God blessing the nations, but I don't know that it was Solomon's wealth that was that was the thing that was to invoke worship of Yahweh. And we don't know that she left as an actual worshiper of Yahweh either. Yeah, yeah. It seems like... um it's almost she's attracted to the prosperity gospelish part of Solomon's mm-hmm. life. Um, that hey, things are really working out for you, and you've got a lot of wisdom. Therefore, your God has dealt well with you. And so, um, yeah. And then there's a big wealth exchange between the two of a bunch of stuff. And so, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to really get a sense of like I'm sure this was a proud moment in the history of Israel that this yeah. queen has acknowledged the, the wisdom of of Yahweh. Um, but at the same time, yeah. I, Maybe it's a blessing of the nations. Some of that seems to be there, but it's still hard sometimes to, to get a grasp of exactly what's happening. Yeah. And so, and then we start hearing about more and more of Solomon's wealth, all the things mm-hmm. that he has. Um, if you are a good New Testament person and have read Revelation, you're going to note that um, the, the author has rounded a bunch of numbers and then doesn't round one specific number where he talks about 666 talents, um, which already the number six historically, and even as we've encountered in the Old Testament, number six is not a positive number um, and carries with it the sort of... Um, 
if God is seven, man is six, and um, and, and sinful humanity is usually tied into that number six. So hearing about 666 things is probably not a good start. Um, mm-hmm. And so, uh, which is tied into his wealth. And so, yeah, there's, there's a struggle there. And at the same time, I just don't see like the spiritual revival that I want to see in Solomon's kingdom. Like, yes, they dedicated the temple and that was an amazing moment, but that was like a day. And so as Solomon gains his wealth, as a sort of um, kingdom kind of grows, I don't know if we hear much about really what's going on uh, in terms of Israel other than it's becoming this wealthy superpower. Yeah, I mean, we start out Solomon's story by hearing God honoring Solomon and offering him wisdom because that's what Solomon asked for and saying he's going to give him wealth as well. But here we see the emphasis really on Solomon's wealth more than his wisdom. And I think it's a really clear contrast to what pleases God and what pleases the world. You know, the upside down kingdom of our creator, God, it doesn't seek notoriety and honor through wealth and fame, but through caring for the poor and the outcast and through drawing others to see their part in God's story. We don't we don't hear about, like Chris said, we don't hear about revival through Solomon's wisdom, uh, but we see how his wealth led him to sin. So for us to step back and reflect and remember that God is pleased by our hearts and our faithfulness to him in the little things, not not the giant things. Well, and then we get this section in chapter 11. And if you remember in Kings, we've already heard that Solomon made Pharaoh's daughter his wife. And, and that was like at the beginning of the Solomon story. Then we see basically Solomon have this amazing building project. We see him conscript and, and enlist foreign slavery. Uh, we see him gain incredible power and wealth. And, uh, and then it's sandwiched on the back end here by chapter 11, where it starts talking about Solomon's foreign wives again. And I think there's a little bit of me of going like, look, this introduction of Pharaoh's daughter and this picture of Solomon's kingdom is, is in some way this return to Egypt with, mm-hmm. with, with Solomon acting like Pharaoh. Um, and, and we're going to start seeing his downfall in the process too, where, um, he has these foreign wives, he ends up building shrines to them, which is a huge no, no. Uh, and, um, and not only that, but the end of, of Solomon's reign, the Israelites actually go up to Rehoboam, uh, which you guys read about this week where he says, your father made our yoke heavy. Um, now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and this heavy yoke upon us and we will serve you. And so there's even a, even an understanding from the Israelites themselves of, of the weight of Solomon's uh, reign on them. And so, yeah, this, this Pharaoh, I think, I think this, this end section with the, the, the women, these foreign wives bookends this Mm -hmm. picture of Solomon being the new Pharaoh. Yeah, so last week I encouraged you guys to look at Deuteronomy 17 and the instructions for kings. And actually in this section is when we see Solomon break the final instruction from Deuteronomy 17. Uh, I would just want to read that passage to you quickly. The king, moreover, and again, this is Deuteronomy 17, verses 16 and 17. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. And now we see that Solomon has done all of these things. The author has been clear to point that out. So we kind of seal, see, I don't know, the, the nail in the coffin around how Solomon's life is going to end. Yeah. And so the Lord raises up uh, three different sort of adversaries uh, for Solomon. We hear about Hadad the Edomite, um, which his story becomes this almost fascinating rever- reversal of Exodus. You have this guy who lived in Edom who uh, ends up disappearing over conflict with with 
Solomon, Solomon's dad. Um, he ends up wandering to Egypt, and now he finds out that David's no longer. Solomon's there, and um, so the, basically there's a new pharaoh on the throne, and he returns uh, to basically confront this current leader in Solomon. And so um, it feels very exodus uh, just reversed, uh, that the person wandering now is down in Egypt and not in the wilderness. And so um, that, and then Razon, who also uh, has been slighted in the past, and then Jeroboam, that's Ephraimite. Um, and you have this kind of unique story where this prophet um, basically takes uh, Jeroboam's fancy new outfit and rips it up and talks about these tribes and that Solomon's son will have one tribe, but Solomon gets um, gets the rest of them. Um, and so, and then Solomon starts acting like Saul here for a moment too, where he hears about um, this prophecy of this prophet and and ultimately where the kingdom is going to go and decides he, he needs to kill Jeroboam. And so, yeah. And then Solomon dies. Yeah, it's a pretty abrupt ending of his life. I mean, the Bible tends to do that. <laughs> I think like I get really attached to people and suddenly they're gone. Um, but we see Solomon reaping the consequences of his divided heart that we never saw fully devoted to the Lord. Uh, but yeah. Um, and then I think one of the things that stood out to me is that we're going to start to see a theme like we did with Ahijah, the prophet. We'll see this theme of, of prophets arising, representing God's voice among the people as they continually wander away from God. And so uh, Rehoboam uh, becomes uh, the king, at least uh, should be in line to be the king. Uh, and there's a question of what's this going to look like? And Jeroboam reminds him, look, your dad treated us like slaves. What are you going to do? And uh, Rehoboam seeks counsel of these kind of wider, wiser, older elders um, who give him, I think, pretty reasonable counsel. And then he decides to reject that counsel. And he's like, all right, I've got my friends here. Um, what, what, kind of, what kind of counsel are you guys going to give me now that uh, basically this crowd that probably grew up with him and their verdict is, well, Tell them that you're even worse than your father, uh, that, that your little finger is thicker than your father's thigh. Like you're that much more, um, stronger and will have that much more of a weight. And it's like, well, my father disciplined with whips, but I'm going to discipline me with scorpions. Uh, so that sounds worse than whips. And so, um, yeah. And, and so Rehoboam's answer to them is no, I'm going to be worse than Solomon was. It's just crazy to think about how one effort at grasping power caused the entire kingdom to fall or to not, I guess it didn't fall yet, but to divide. Yeah. If Rehoboam had simply listened to the wise counsel from those older people, it would have gone very differently. So, but the kingdom is divided and understandably those 10 tribes leave, um, and make Jeroboam their king. Uh, and so maybe they've heard the prophecy, maybe Jeroboam shared it with them. Um, and Jeroboam's taken over, um, basically the, the 10 tribes in the North and uh, Rehoboam seems to really want to kill him, uh, but at least a prophet stops him and says, oh, don't do that. Right. And he's like, okay. And so you're like, <laughs> all right, let's see where this goes. Oh, no, it goes really bad. <laughs> I'm like, oh, these 12 tribes, maybe they'll be faithful. No. no. Or like, so uh, like, yeah, like maybe the Jeroboam seems like a, a kind of an upright guy. I mean, yeah. And then. So Jeroboam seems, once again, there's a little bit of a power play. He seems to be worried that. Um, that these people are going to have to go back to the land of Judah to worship because Jerusalem is within and the temple is within the land of Rehoboam. And so um, he's like, well, we need some place to worship here in these 10 tribes. And so he builds these two altars and of course uses a golden calf, which uh, if you're going to use something, I, I just don't know the thought process here for him um, to do that. And he even quotes Exodus that these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And so um, I'm a little bit intrigued of if, if the tabernacle still existed, whether 
whether there be ability to bring the tabernacle into the land of these 10 tribes who are trying to be faithful versus Rehoboam. Um, I don't know. I, I still wrestle with the movability of the tabernacle versus the permanence of the temple. But um, yeah, I'm just, it, no matter what, this is a clearly awful thing in Jeroboam's actions here. Yeah. And, and for us, you know, maybe we're not going to like have this exact literal experience, but we have to guard our hearts and we have to know the word of God. It's so easy to define what worship looks like outside of God's instructions in scripture. It's really easy for me to say, well, I don't go to church, but I'm a Christian and I do church by myself. And that that directly contradicts the scripture that we read and know. So um, the word of God is clear that there is acceptable forms of worship and there are unacceptable forms of worship. And we cannot make up our own way of doing things. Yeah. And hang on to the fact that um, one of those cities is Bethel because it's going to play out in your reading next week. Second uh, Chronicles 7. Uh, and so uh, I'm sorry that these timelines don't totally line <laughs> up. a little bit of a whiplash. It's, it's I was like, like, whoa, wait, what like happened Solomon to died and the kingdom fell apart. Let's go back to the dedication of the temple. I know, the glory um, of building the temple. Yeah, and so it, it is what it is. But um, <laughs> yeah, and so God shows up, consumes this kind of sacrifice and... The, the, the temple's dedicated. Everybody has a celebration. And of course, there's a reason to celebrate. It's because God has come to dwell. So it's fitting. Um, and, and the same celebration should be like when the Holy Spirit enters someone's life. Like that should be a party because the Holy Spirit, the God has come to dwell um, in the temple of that person's life. And so, um, yeah. Yeah. There's this phrase of their worship and it looks like declaring God's goodness, his love and his enduring character. And that phrase has continued to stick with me. And maybe because we read it a lot in the Bible. Um, but I just keep keep having it in my mind and keep meditating on it in such that if I truly understand and believe God's goodness, his love, and his enduring character, a lot will come together as far as what it looks like to worship and obey God. And God speaks of what was going to be inevitable, basically. Look, if you obey everything, I'll stay. And if you don't, I'm gone. And, um, and so the hope in that moment is... Uh, slim to none uh, that that he's going to stick around because um, they're going to struggle to obey pretty quickly. So yeah, and you know I think our like modern day Christianity really loves verse fourteen about if my people pray I will hear their land, uh, and I think I think that's not a bad thing to pray, but we do need to be really careful with the context here. Is it is it really something we can apply to every situation, or are we starting to become like name it claim it sort of people? I'm not sure. I mean, we know that God listens to the righteous when they pray, and we are made righteous through Christ. And so there is that component. We know our sin is forgiven, and we know there will be a healed land in the new heavens and the new earth. But let's be careful about what we apply this passage to, and make sure that it's that we are submitting this prayer under the rule and authority of God and His Word. Yeah, the New Testament writers take a very sojourner mindset mm-hmm. to who we are, that we're not in the land that we're supposed to be, not that we are in the land and we need to heal it. And, and so, um, for us to, to pray that I, I think is a, a misattribution and, um, versus we have a land and we know what that land is now. And it's that much clearer. And guess what it is? It's not a bunch of acreage, uh, between the Mediterranean and the Jordan river. It, it is a, a, a place that, that, that God is preparing now for us. Um, that is, that is a true land uh, for us to dwell in forever. And so, um, the, the he, we don't need that healed. God's taking care yeah. of that part. And so we, we should repent. We should turn to him. Those are plenty of decent instructions. Uh, but sometimes I worry about how this gets applied to a nation and things like that post Jesus. I just don't know if there's, if that makes sense. Yeah. I wonder if like a, a post Jesus 
form of this prayer is let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah, that, that would make more sense to me. <laughs> so but, anyway, yeah. something to think about. New Testament. Uh, so Paul um, is still struggling with the relationship between him and this church and some of the stuff that's happened in the past. And But Paul expresses, yes, there's been some relational problems with them, but yes, he still absolutely loves them. And, and he even refers to this whatever struggle he's had in Macedonia, um, that he's heard this great report from Titus and it's, it's really encouraged him. It's been, it's been great to hear that the Corinthians actually love him back, that, that this group that he's writing to does seem to love him back. Um, but he's, he owns some of the strife. He's like, look, I wrote you this letter and yeah, I, I understand it made you, it made, it grieved you. It made me sad at least briefly, but Ultimately, I was happy because what it did produce in you guys is, is you guys changed. You guys repented. You guys dealt with your problems um, and, and became alive. And I'm excited to see that that you've become this. Like, you've got zeal now on the backside of that. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's it stunk that it produced this grief in you. But at the same time, um, its its end game was, was awesome. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I really like the, the part where he talks about how godly grief um, leads to repentance, which leads to salvation without regret. And... We've, I think it's good to remember that there are different responses to godly grief and conviction compared to guilt. So consider the motivation around your own spiritual journey. Do you feel guilty when you're confronted with sin or do you feel grieved in such a way that you repent? Guilt or worldly grief really produces death, but godly grief produces reconciliation and wholeness. Yeah. And Paul recounts these churches in the Macedonian area, probably churches like Philippi, Thessaloniki, Berea, um, and that they gave beyond their means, which whatever that means, but, uh, it seems like they, they weren't overly affluent collection of people and yet, uh, were excited to take up this offering, uh, for this church, uh, in Jerusalem, as we will see. Um, but Paul strategic, he just talked about these Corinthians and how wonderful they are. And he goes on to praise this group. Um, and, and, um, basically it's like, look, this isn't a command, but, um, you guys have the means. You guys have seen how other churches are excited about giving. And, and I want to give you that opportunity too to do this. And, and it seems like there's some commitment they made in the past. But Paul's really smart because at the end of that section, he connects both the work of Jesus and even uh, the, the, the man in the desert where he's like, look, giving is like modeling Jesus who gave up heaven. He gave up all the treasures, the riches that he would have had in heaven to come to this earth so that we would get heaven. Um, and and so when we give, when we leverage the things that we have, the, the blessings that we have um, for the sake of others, um, that, that we are enacting like Christ uh, by doing that. And, and he connects it to the man in the desert too, which uh, the people collected every day. And some people collected more, some people collected less, um, but they collected and, and it sounds like likely distributed so that no one was in need from the collection of manna. And so so those that had more shared with those who had less. And so um, this isn't a new idea, even in the New Testament, but um, it's smart But for Paul to connect those two. Yeah. I think this passage, really, the heart of it is showing that our generosity proves the earnestness of our love for others. I very much prefer to read this for the Corinthians and not for me. When Paul says, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, uh, it's it's deeply convicting, so much that I honestly don't even know what to do with it. And then, yeah, Paul talks about the manna and had no one had leftovers, but do you know what I do with the leftovers of my resources? I keep them and I use them for my own pleasure. I think this is a direct challenge for me personally to my earnest love for others. If my generosity proves that I love others, I love very little. I would rather have more shoes or the newest iPhone than care for the needs of suffering brothers and sisters. So this passage really stung. And I 
I have found this turmoil of not even wanting to to reflect on it or think about it because (laughs) I don't know what God is going to ask me to do. And I see that it's a stronghold in my life. Yeah. So, uh, Paul, knowing that this book is filled with him trying to address accusations, also speaks to um, basically the kind of above reproach appro- uh, approach to the collection. So, Titus and some of these other guys are going to pick it up uh, so that he he's not accused of skimming off the top. Yeah. And so, um, we find out that the collection is certainly for the church in Jerusalem, um, and that there was some commitment before from the Corinthians. Maybe Paul didn't pick it up on that time. He decided not to stop through. Uh, but he's like, look, I'm sending people be ready to give. Um, and don't put me to shame because I've bragged on y'all so much. Uh, so, uh, he kind of plays that shame card, even though he's like, I want you to give cheerfully, but I don't want you to put me to shame either. <laughs> yeah, it makes a lot of sense, I think, when you're thinking about the context of an honor-shame culture. Yeah. And this is a great time for us to, again, reflect on giving in regard to the gospel. Jesus didn't give just a tenth. He gave all of himself for us, right? And because God's grace was given abundantly to us and has worked in and transformed our lives, we can freely offer whatever riches we have through his grace. And because when we're walking in his example, that's what we're going to do. Yeah. And Paul's clear. It's not extortion. This isn't a command. I'm not trying to guilt you into this, but oh, I do want cheerful generosity. Like I want you guys to be excited to give to this opportunity and to the needs of the church. And and even kind of points out the benefit. And it's not you give to get more financially. He actually talks about it, that they're going to reap a harvest of righteousness and that it will be enriching mm-hmm. for them. And so uh, as if there's a maturity that comes with this, there's a maturity of not having money as your idol and giving generosity or generously. There's a, there's a maturity on um, being willing to, to suffer loss for the sake of the kingdom, all those sort of things. And so um, Paul, Paul highlights those, that there's, there's benefits in this process. And it's not just getting more stuff. That's not the benefit. It's it's continued maturity, continued Christ-likeness. And one benefit is that the churches that don't have anything, guess what they're going to do in return? They're going to pray for you guys. And so um, it's great. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Are you guys tired of hearing about giving and generosity <laughs> yet? I think this is just a hard lesson for us in our consumeristic and comfortable America. The wealthiest to me often seem the least generous because we are the most dependent on our wealth. We don't know what it's like to live without Uh, We don't know what it's like to be dependent on God alone, so we hoard. But when we sow sparingly, we reap sparingly. And as much as we want to make this about a lot of different things, it's first and foremost, at least in this part about financial giving and God's work. Um, I want to read, it's kind of long, but I want to read a quote from David Platt because it just, it really impacted me when I read this book. It's from his book, Counterculture, I think. Um, He says, where then are we going to invest our lives and specifically our money and our possessions? Put your excess $10,000 in the bank. The thinking goes, let it grow. And 20 years from now, you'll have $100,000 to give to the poor. Without question, that is one way to approach investment. And it may be what the Lord leads you to do. But don't forget that there is another way. Imagine you take that excess $10,000 and invest it in a church planter who will work alongside the new medical facility being built near Samir's village. Imagine that medical facility flourishing me basic medical needs for men, women, and children in the surrounding community, dramatically reducing the death rate due to preventable disease. And imagine that the church planner preaching the gospel in those same villages, telling them that God not only hears their cries in material poverty, but that he will save their souls from spiritual poverty. Imagine those villages 20 years later with hundreds, if not thousands of Christians singing and shouting the praises of God while spreading the good news of the, of the gospel. Certainly that's an investment worth considering, isn't it? 
step back, think about your funds, think about your excess funds, and what does it look like to be a cheerful giver before the Lord? Yeah, it reminds me <clears throat> of one of the gospel stories related to, and I feel like we talked about it, of um, the guy who was hoarding a lot and um, and sort of gets condemned in the process. And um, and I forgot who the quote was from, but the the, the teaching that little did the main character know that um, that the food he was hoarding was a better investment in the stomachs of the poor than it was in those storehouses. And, um, just trying to think through like, all right, yeah, I understand. I understand if you put money in and collect the investment later, but at the same time, there's, there's generosity when it's, when it's laid out in front of you, you have been blessed in this moment, like today to be a blessing to others. And, um, as opportunity presents itself, it's also an opportunity to leverage how God is blessing you for the sake of the kingdom and um, to be wise about that, um, that those opportunities aren't presented haphazardly, mm-hmm. uh, but sovereignly. And so um, pray about it, really think about it. Yeah. And Paul defends his ministry. Um, and so just as a bit of a, a nerdy footnote, uh, some people do think that Corinthians, 2 Corinthians is two different letters that kind of eventually got kind of merged together. And that this is sort of a turning point, which kind of makes sense. Paul definitely changes tone very quickly um, to to praising these people a few times for a few chapters now to be like, okay, I'm I'm still mad about something that's stuff that's going on at, at this church, and so um, apparently. Paul thinks, or they think that Paul's different in his letters than he is in person. Paul certainly objects being like, look, this battle that we're fighting, it's not about flesh. You're, you're judging me by the flesh, but it's not about the flesh. It's about the spirit. And um, those objectors, they're just bragging about themselves and they just need to take a height. Like the real apostles don't boast in themselves. They boast in the things of God. And Paul's like, look, here's the thing of God. Like you should listen to me because I, I planted you guys as a <laughs> church. Like you are the, the evidence of the supernatural work of God. And so if you're going to listen to me versus the super apostle, you should probably listen to me in this situation. So, yeah. Yeah. I think the middle section of this is, it's really good for us to understand. We are spiritual people in a spiritual battle using spiritual weapons. We know through Ephesians that these weapons are the word of God and spirit empowered prayer. And we use them to wage war on the primary battlefield, which is our mind. Because of this, we've got to, Christians, we have got to take every thought captive. We don't get to turn off our brains at the end of a long day with a couple glasses of wine or Netflix. We must be constantly on guard as if in battle, taking those thoughts captive. And remember, we get to do this because we have the mind of Christ. We will win the battle and we, and we know how it ends because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So don't forget to remind yourself that you are Christ and don't forget to ask for grace to take those thoughts captive. Yeah. All right. A couple Psalms and one proverb, Psalm 139. Um, I, I really, I like this Psalm even more when I read it about God, when I learn that God searches and knows all things, when I read that God pursues us and cares for us, that he forms us, that his thoughts are endless and that they are all good. Reading it from the perspective of who God is rather than who I am is going to lead me to cry out, God, search me and know me and lead me in the way everlasting. He is just so worthy of being known when we understand who he is. Yeah, I'm nothing to add to that. Uh, <laughs> Psalm, Psalm 112, um, which we just saw in Second Corinthians 9, 9 get quoted. And so, um, yeah, this is all about the righteous and how awesome the righteous are, or if we want to get very Christ-like, how awesome Christ is, because he is the truly righteous one who, even when wealthy, gave practiced generosity, gave away, and was unmovable, steadfast, um, even under accusations or bad news, whatever it is, um, is is steadfast and continuing on. 
Yeah, I I have a note in in my Bible to use this psalm as a structure to pray uh, to pray for my family or people I love to pray that uh, we would delight in God's commandments uh, that we would be people who are gracious gracious and merciful and righteous that we will deal generously and lend that we would conduct our affairs with justice and that we would not be afraid of bad news but our heart be firm trusting in the Lord. In Proverbs twenty two um, seemed like a pretty rich chapter of Proverbs with a lot of really meaty kind of one-liner or two-liners. Um, and things like generosity are all over this chapter too, in case you weren't tired enough of reading about generosity. Um, even even connecting it to the good eye, which makes me want to go back to the Sermon on the Mount and, and think through that a little bit more. Um, but it talks about discipling your kids, humility, all those things are included. And then there's a transition to these 30 sayings and um, some of them are, are helpful. Don't oppress the poor. Don't give pledges uh, when you uh, that you can't keep or get in debt. Mm. Um, try to be skillful in your work and, and don't remove ancient landmarks when you ancestors. So if you've been practicing that, you need to stop it. Uh, and so, um, yeah, there's some, just some good, good wisdom. Yeah. Next week, what should we look for? So Solomon's downfall is reflected pretty differently in Chronicles than it is in Kings. Mm -hmm. Uh, take a look at that, but spend some time reflecting on your own life. When you think of Solomon's downfall, what are the threats to your assembling and how can you speak or connect the gospel of Christ to the own temptations you deal with? Like we saw Solomon and in the new Testament, pay attention to the commands that Paul gives in this last section of second Corinthians. We don't see a ton of commands in the book, but he does add quite a few at the end. So they're important to watch. And why do you think he's including them there? And uh, what does it mean for you? Yeah, and for me, um, one of your last readings for the week, we'll deal with this kind of weird, unique story. Uh, it feels almost a bit random, given some of the stories that have led up to it. And if you look at the details, think through them. What city are they in? What do we know about this place? What what should we think about a prophet that might live there? Or just um, and, and the boys who happen to be in that town that day. I think thinking through some of those situations helps. Or even even the imagery of a lion and a donkey. What, what do those represent historically, particularly at that time? And so um, I think it helps make sense a little bit more of that story. Otherwise, you read through it, you're like, cool, there's just things that happened. Um, but I think there's more teaching going on there. And then in New Testament, um, Paul, Paul finally <laughs> hits, hits his like pressure point and just yeah. like starts going off sarcastically. Um, and he starts boasting. Um, and, 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 but it's important to go, okay, what does Paul really boast about? And what is his approach? Like, why does he approach it that way? And what is he trying to teach the Corinthians in sort of his approach to, to boasting in this moment? So um, yeah, so that's it. Thanks y'all. Thank you guys. Thank you guys.